We know that people of Chinese descent have a higher risk for type 2 diabetes, but there are many questions about why that is and how that risk could be reduced. I'm Krista Lam, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Calvin Key about his work studying type 2 diabetes in the Chinese community. Dr. Key is an endocrinologist and a clinical epidemiologist in Toronto. Welcome to the show, Dr. Key. Thank you so much, Krista. Now, first off, I am so happy to finally have you on the show because I've seen you present your research a number of times and I've always thought how fantastic it is and how interesting it is because I think like a lot of people, you don't always think about it uh, in the way that you define it. So why did you decide to focus on this area? So I think it's really important for a number of reasons. Firstly, from a global perspective, I, I think of diabetes very broadly in the global context. And we know from the International Diabetes Federation that there's 463 million people with diabetes, um, adults worldwide, nearly one in 10. And uh, about a quarter of them are actually from one large country, from China. And uh, so 80% of people with diabetes in low and middle income countries and uh, countries like China, they're going to be very important in terms of focusing on how we can really reduce and address the burden of diabetes. And I think this is so important and relevant to the Canadian context where we live in a beautiful multicultural society. Um, this kind of global perspective is highly relevant. And a lot of this is informed by my own personal experience growing up in the very multicultural city of Toronto. My experience growing up here is a lot similar to uh, other second generation immigrants with parents who came to Canada from a different country. And we grew up speaking different language than English in the household. I think it's a uniquely Canadian experience being able to identify as a Canadian, but also as a Chinese person with roots in different parts of the world. And so it's, it's in my youth that uh, we really maintain a really rich cultural connection to Hong Kong and having family traditions, gatherings, large uh, extended family gatherings um, over food often, really developing this sense of belonging to a community. And that really informs my perspective of some of the social determinants of diabetes in my own community. And it really got me thinking about how my risk of diabetes, you know, growing up in this kind of context, varies from other Chinese immigrants, such as my parents, who came um, in the 1970s in very different set of circumstances, and then growing up in a very different set of circumstances. And how does that affect the risk of getting diabetes? How does that change your diabetes management? I think a lot of questions need to be answered to, to really improve and understand uh, diabetes in the Chinese community that can be also very relevant in terms of translating the concepts to other cultural communities in Toronto. And that's really interesting because I've talked to Dr. Ananya Banerjee quite a bit about her work in the South Asian community. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that she looks at it like South Asian people, it's a very large diaspora and they have a varied experience of you know, life and culturally. And so looking at it as one South Asian group seems to be somewhat problematic in terms of considering risk. And so is that similar to what you're looking at in the Chinese community? I think that's entirely similar. In the Chinese community, we have people who come to Canada from Hong Kong, people who come from mainland China, people who come from Taiwan, and also Chinese people who grow up in very other different parts of the world, like Singapore and, and other places, and grouping them all together um, as Chinese. Well, there's a lot of heterogeneity there, and we have to really understand that. And I think that one of the really useful ways that, that I understand it is in terms of sort of waves of migration. I think in Canada, we see this phenomenon where there are successive waves of people coming from different places. And this is true, not only in the Chinese community, but also 
in the South Asian and other communities. And so in the 1960s and 70s, and even prior to that, we had a lot of uh, sort of working class Chinese, mostly from Hong Kong, uh, but also in other parts of southern China who came initially to uh, help with things like railroad construction, but then uh, after that to fill working class jobs, you know, working laundromats, opening up restaurants. So a lot of people coming from that type of background. And uh, increasingly in the 1980s, there's been a shift in immigration policy to sort of target more higher income immigrants. And more recently after that, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, we see this rise in terms of immigrants from mainland China. And part of this occurs in conjunction with the uh, spectacular sort of economic growth in China and, and the rise in the middle class in that country and this uh, targeting of uh, sort of higher income immigrants to sort of contribute to the economy in Canada um, through specific uh, government immigration policies, which really gives rise to very, very uh, different groups of people with different risks of diabetes, different cultural backgrounds and different practices that I think we need to really understand in order to be able to predict who's going to get diabetes and who isn't and who needs strategies to prevent diabetes, who we need to reach out to. And also in terms of how we manage diabetes, what are the best strategies that work for different populations? Me as a Chinese Canadian growing up in Canada, I'm going to be comfortable in a variety of settings. But uh, you know, somebody coming from mainland China, you know, as a student who may not uh, speak the English uh, language very well, may not be you know, comfortable accessing health services, you know, people like that are going to require a very different type of approach in order to be able to prevent and to manage diabetes successfully. I think that's really interesting because for years we've heard that people who are of Chinese descent are more at risk of type 2 diabetes. And because it's not one size fits all group, what would you say are some of the misconceptions that we need to overcome in better explaining to both the community and to everyone in the diabetes community why there is an increased risk? And is that risk in everyone who is of Chinese descent or certain populations are more at risk? Can you talk a little bit about that? So I think that you've hit on a really important point. I mean, I think that in terms of looking at diabetes risk, um, Chinese ethnicity, or, you know, even more broadly, some people say Asian ethnicity, which is a huge grab bag of, of different groups of people is associated with an increased risk. But, uh, you know, that I think requires a bit of nuance in terms of understanding how that risk varies. Some of the work that I'm doing is looking at how this risk is different across different waves of immigrants. And uh, we're finding really that people who, um, you know, immigrated from Hong Kong and the, uh, you know, they may have came um, in the 80s or, uh, or before that, you know, they're people who come from a variety of uh, socioeconomic backgrounds and who come from a sort of urbanized sort of setting, a very a high income uh, territory in, in Hong Kong and they come to Canada. And actually their risk of diabetes is uh, quite similar to uh, other Canadians in terms of their, their incidence of, of type 2 diabetes uh, that we're finding. Whereas people who come from other parts of China that we see uh, coming from high-income areas of China, uh, we see that there's uh, a lot of increase in, in terms of the rates of obesity, increased childhood obesity, increased obesity in adults, especially in richer populations in China who are often more able to access services in terms of being able to immigrate to Canada and who are also specifically targeted by immigration policies. And so the risk of diabetes is very different in this group. And we see that there are increasing risks of type 2 diabetes, especially in young people coming from China, increased uh, risks of 
type 2 diabetes in young people. And when I say young, I mean people under the age of 40. And that's sort of an arbitrary definition that's, that's been used in the literature, specifically in, in men and women who are immigrating from China. And we really need to understand why that is. And you know, some of that risk has now you know, exceeded the background rate of uh, people in Canada. And so I think this is the group where we, we see that increased risk. And I think that this increase in young onset type 2 diabetes is very important because young people who develop diabetes, maybe in their 20s or 30s, you know, diabetes is a chronic condition. They're going to be living with this for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, it's going to be decades with diabetes. And we really have to manage it properly. We really have to reduce the risk of complications because we know that a young age at diagnosis is one of the strongest predictors for increased rates of complications, such as heart attacks, strokes, and, uh, and other complications of diabetes. And so we really need to focus on this population. We need to manage diabetes better. And we know that it's often the most difficult to, uh, to manage diabetes in, in young people for many reasons, but also because the disease is intrinsically more aggressive when it develops at such a young age. I think that's a really interesting point because as we move forward with educating people about their risk and educating people about ways that they might potentially reduce their risk of type 2 diabetes, are there ways that we can be communicating this better in this community? I think there are definitely ways to improve our communication of this risk. You know, I think back to my experience, you know, I, I work clinically in Scarborough, which is a very, very diverse part of Toronto. In some areas, uh, in over two-thirds of the population don't speak English as their first language, and a very rich and vibrant Chinese community along with uh, South Asians and, and other, other cultures. And so when I work there, I see people from all different types of backgrounds. And uh, recently, I was uh, in the hospital, and I was asked to see uh, a 19-year-old student who came from China. His parents were in China. He had no family members here. He was living in a homestay, and he started getting very thirsty and he was urinating more than usual, and he felt very, very sick. And he had no family doctor. He uh, did not know how to access his campus health services. He really was lost, and it was eventually his homestay supervised that you know, connected him to the, to the hospital, and eventually he came in, and he was diagnosed with a severe uh, complication of diabetes and his diabetic ketoacidosis. You know, his blood sugars were very high. His blood was acidic, and uh, we, we really needed to uh, manage that very aggressively. And so eventually we treated him with insulin and eventually he became my patient. And I, I recently followed up with him in my clinic. And I'm very fortunate in my setting to have a nurse who's able to provide him education about diabetes in Mandarin in a way that he's comfortable with. Because I think that for somebody coming from that background, you know, even accessing a hospital where things are unfamiliar and you know, even despite having language translation services, just the, the setting and the approach is, is just so different from what he would be used to back in his country. And so to have uh, someone be able to give that uh, education in a way that he's able to understand and communicate freely, I think was so useful for him. And now he's able to manage his diabetes very well and his blood sugars. I'm, I'm so happy with his progress. They're really spectacular. And I, I think uh, reflecting back on his case, um, going back to your question, I, I think about, you know, how could we really have reached out to somebody like that? to be able to improve his recognition of these symptoms, or even be able to prevent the diabetes in the first place. I mean, he had a family history of diabetes. Both his parents had, had diabetes. He, he had risk factors such as obesity, and uh, he was a, a recent migrant. And you know, he probably was undergoing a lot of stress in terms of completing his studies and, and during the pandemic. 
and uh, all of that probably compounded in his new diagnosis of diabetes. So we really need to think about strategies about how we reach out to high-risk groups, certain new immigrants. How do we really get to these groups? You know, do we go through schools, campus, or um, is it going to be through immigration? I think that we need to be more vigilant in how we um, connect new immigrants to health services. Maybe if he had a family doctor, he would have been able to be screened for diabetes. I really think that we need to pay more attention to develop better strategies to prevent diabetes and also to manage it better in uh, these sort of high-risk populations. Yes, that really makes me think a lot about the barriers that sometimes we don't think about in terms of reaching different communities where they're at and finding solutions that actually fit the community that needs them. So do you have any other suggestions about ways that we could be doing a better job at reaching different communities? Yeah, so I want to sort of draw upon some of my experiences globally that I've, I've had the very good fortune of being able to work with excellent supervisors. Um, I mean, Supervisors Beju Shah in Canada, who uh, has been able to um, introduce me to the research in uh, Chinese and South Asian populations in Toronto. But I've also been able to translate that to, to global settings and, and learn about how people in the Chinese community globally, how their diabetes is being managed and, and sort of best case uh, examples of how we can manage diabetes better and how can we bring that back into the Canadian healthcare context. So I had the really good fortune of uh, being introduced to Professor Juliana Chen, who is a world-leading um, expert in, in diabetes at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I actually spent over a year in Hong Kong learning from her and from her research group about sort of her best practices and being able to um, conduct research with her team. And one of the things that I was really amazed by in Hong Kong is the systems that they have in terms of collecting data and being able to analyze that data and to harness the data to be able to make decisions about clinical care and to improve that management. So they have a web-based system to be able to input all of the data for uh, people with diabetes. They're collecting information such as, you know, age of diagnosis, all their medications go into this uh, sort of centralized registry where we have all this information, we're able to access it and track their outcomes over time. And uh, the, the really unique part about this type of uh, approach, um, the system, uh, which has uh, since expanded from the Chinese University of Hong Kong to the entire territory of Hong Kong and even expanded to uh, other parts of Asia now through the Joint Asia Diabetes Evaluation Program. Uh, part of the, the really special thing about this type of system is that they're able to take the data points for each patient and use uh, very sophisticated modeling to generate um, an estimate of someone's risk of developing certain complications. So if I have diabetes, I'm 32 years old, I have my blood sugar is a certain number, my cholesterol is a certain number, they can take all that information and they can say, you know, your, your chance of developing a stroke is, uh, you know, 2% in the next 10 years. Or for somebody else, it might be 10%, you know, somebody else might be even higher than that. And they can say, you know, based on that recommendation, we really need to focus on you know, improving your blood sugar. And if we reduced it by this much, then, then your, your risk might be reduced by half or something like that. And I think that in the Chinese community, in Hong Kong especially, they respond really well to that. And I think that really resonates very well with the way that they think and, uh, and, and they really become very focused on improving the management of risk factors. I mean, that, that approach may not translate across uh, everyone with diabetes, but for people in Hong Kong, it's, it's been very successful and, 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 you know, these sort of reports that they can generate and really explain risk to patients in a way that, you know, 
uh, that we aren't really able to currently in, in the setting that I practice here uh, locally in Canada. And so I think to be able to translate something like that, to be able to clearly explain to patients uh, what, what their diabetes is and what their risk is, and also in a team-based setting. So we, we have diabetes education centers in Canada. We have a team-based approach with nurses and diabetes educators. And then, you know, they use these risk reports and risk stratification method in a setting that's supported by special diabetes nurses. And so I think that uh, there's a lot of room to, to think about how we can improve the way that we communicate the diagnosis of diabetes and that we communicate risk and that we communicate management strategies so that people, um, especially of Chinese background, can understand why we're doing what we're doing and what are the things that, that we're worried about so that we can uh, really focus on patient education and using it as a tool to ultimately improve outcomes in diabetes. Yeah, it's really interesting that you talk about that because we've had Drs. Bezier Shaw and Alana Wiseman on the show before talking about the power of data if we're able to use it in a way that can either give us information or can help people living with diabetes have healthier lives and better outcomes. So it's really exciting to see what we're doing as we move closer to, I hope, a, a model similar to what you mentioned in Hong Kong, because I think it would be a really good thing for people to be more aware of their risks. And so I wanted to touch on something you said a little earlier. You mentioned that you have a nurse in your office who can speak to patients in the language that they feel most comfortable in. And I know recently you've been tweeting a bit about your experience treating people during the pandemic. And I was particularly interested because you talked about the barriers that some of your patients who are not fluent in English have had in accessing the vaccine. And so that must be really stressful to someone who has diabetes or to someone who just simply can't access something because there are these barriers in terms of language. And are there things that you're experiencing as a physician or as an endocrinologist and an epidemiologist in these communities that you think we could fix in the Canadian context? So I think that this is such an important problem that you've hit on. You know, I see so many people, different backgrounds in my clinic, but especially from the Chinese population. And I've been sort of especially referred to a lot of these patients because, you know, they're, a lot of them are recent immigrants. English is not their first language. They may not be comfortable uh, communicating English, or they may be older populations who, who don't speak English at all. And it's very difficult for them to access health services. And, you know, in, in some cases, they have family doctors who are able to, to provide culturally appropriate care. But in terms of accessing diabetes specialists, uh, diabetes services and specialized uh, diabetes management, uh, you know, it's sort of a big gap in the community. And, you know, me being able to provide the, these services, you know, that sort of works really well for these patients. But, you know, what about the patients that, that I'm not seeing and, you know, who's going to be able to look after them? So I really think that this is a really big challenge. I don't have all the answers. Um, I think that's something that um, we can certainly look at in terms of how we can expand care in these populations, how we can do this more efficiently. I mean, with the rise of virtual care, I'm able to sort of reach people more broadly and, and more efficiently. And, you know, could that be used uh, as a model to be able to expand care to, to people who require special services that may not be available locally in their own community? Or can we really take advantage of the, the great uh, nurses uh, and, and dietitians and, and other health professionals that, that can provide um, culturally appropriate services and, and be able to harness their skills and able to uh, develop uh, better models of team-based care so that we can really expand the number of patients that we can see and that we can manage? Can we really stratify the amount of risk 
that uh, people have in terms of their diabetes and, and really see people differently in terms of the frequency of follow-ups, depending on how high their risk is in terms of developing complications and how severe their disease is. I mean, there's so much to be explored there. There's a real interest in terms of exploring the heterogeneity of diabetes and the, the phenotypes of diabetes and so much more research going into that. And uh, to really understand how one person's risk can be totally different from another, how one person can be stable for a long time without many changes in their medications, while other people, their diabetes may escalate very quickly. You know, if we're able to identify these people and say that, you know, this person requires more frequent follow-up, this person, you know, maybe we can see once a year. Like, you, currently our, our system is not structured that way. We're not, the financing systems are not structured that way. The teams are not structured that way. And so I think there's a lot of areas that we can look at in terms of being able to expand culturally appropriate care and also to be able to improve the efficiency of diabetes teams in meeting the needs of patients in the Chinese community, but also more broadly among people with diabetes. Excellent. And one of the things that I will ask you, and that'll be my last question, is because we do have a lot of healthcare providers who listen to the show, I always like to ask you if you have any thoughts on how they could better explain the risk or help their Chinese Canadian patients manage the risk or if they're living with diabetes, what advice would you give to them? I think that diabetes is so different across different people that we really have to take an individualized approach to be able to meet the needs of the person with diabetes. I think that for many high-risk groups, especially young people, we need to communicate the increased risks of complications and to also understand the barriers that they're facing, many of them facing socioeconomic barriers, and to, to really understand where they're coming from, to be able to develop shared decision-making in terms of being able to uh, develop realistic strategies that also uh, respond to the, the clinical demands of the condition that we're seeing. And uh, there's so much heterogeneity in diabetes in the Chinese population and outside of the Chinese population that uh, we need more research to understand this better. But uh, I think that the individualized approach and uh, individualized goal setting is uh, really key to be able to achieve good outcomes uh, for people with diabetes. Wonderful. Well, I think we've all learned a lot from this conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on the show today. So thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Krista, for the opportunity to talk about this today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. So if you liked today's show, please be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help others find the show. If you'd like more information on this topic or others related to diabetes, visit diabetes.ca or contact Diabetes Canada at info at diabetes.ca. You can also find us on all the social media platforms at Diabetes Canada. Thanks for listening.